Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 87, Inglorious Andros. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to support the show, why not consider signing up for the membership feed? In addition to a backlog of episodes, we are currently going through a biography of Napoleon, which I am very much enjoying. You can sign up by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. In our last episode, we covered the foundation of the Dominion of New England. During the mid-17th century, the English colonies of the Americas had mostly been left to their own devices. The restored monarchy of Charles II and James II wanted to stop this. In particular, the rebellious nature of Massachusetts, and in October 1684, the Royal Charter was annulled. The colony was to be replaced with a larger administrative unit, modelled on the Viceroyalty of New Spain, known as the Dominion of New England. It would contain Massachusetts, Plymouth, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, East Jersey, and West Jersey. In December 1686, the former governor of New York, Sir Edmund Andros, was made governor of the Dominion. While there would be advantages to such a union, such as a stable Indian policy, we close the episode by talking about why the Dominion of New England seemed doomed to fail. The deposed oligarchy of New England were extremely hostile to their replacement, each colony already had its own unique identity, and the area was simply too big for one man to govern. After that recap, it's time to watch it all fall apart. Now, while Andros was guaranteed to alienate the leadership of the colonies at some point, he managed to achieve it with remarkable speed. The oligarchs had a number of grievances which they took issue with, but one which caused particular offence was, as I'm sure you can imagine given the nature of most New England colonies, religious policy. While Andros was directed to grant religious toleration to all Protestants, he favoured the Anglicans. For example, he forced the Congregationalists to allow Anglicans to use their meeting houses on Sundays. They had two issues with this. On a practical level, it was problematic to have two services in the same church, particularly when you consider that Congregationalist services were rather lengthy, but it was, on a spiritual level, a sin for them to encourage the worship of the heretical Anglicans, who were little better than Papists. It would have been far more tactful to defer public Anglican worship until an Anglican church had been constructed, but Andros was not tactful. He did other things too to annoy them, such as not strictly keeping the Sabbath and celebrating Christmas. This may surprise some of you, but the Puritans of New England regarded Christmas as a Catholic festival. I can't be too sure on whether this would be surprising though. I was taught in school about how the dreary Puritans banned Christmas until 
joy was restored to the country with the return of the monarchy. It is a rather well-known fact, but I don't know how well that translates across the Atlantic to my American listeners. Although I'm quite sure that Oliver Cromwell and the English Republic are not vilified to quite the same extent as they are here. Although my thoughts on how children are taught about the English Republic, and I do have a lot of them, are probably best suited for another time when I'm not speaking into a microphone. Anyway, this was one of the issues that caused the locals to dislike Andros. Another was the land question. As part of the reorganisation of the colonies, all unclaimed land was to become royal land, which, for a small fee, could be granted to the colonists. In theory, this sounds fine, but in practice there were a couple of problems. Let me explain. As we covered in our initial episodes on New England, the basic unit of life in the region was the town. Each town had its own boundary of land which had been either unofficially or officially granted by the colonial assembly, and perhaps purchased from the Indians. The land of the town was then subdivided into plots for each citizen, with part of it held by the community as either a common pasture or woodland. This was the way things had been done, but the process was not officially in the charters and that meant that technically the whole process was illegal. This meant that, theoretically, almost all the land in New England was technically unclaimed. All this land would be seized from towns and families after it had been held for generations at this point, who would then have to buy back the land. The fee was very small, but this didn't matter. The citizenry were outraged, and there was almost no point to it, it wasn't going to raise that much money. But still, Andros carried out the policy. Andros was not at fault for coming up with the policy, and received far more criticism than the king did, but he was unwise in carrying it out. Much like with the religious issue, Andros showed a remarkable lack of common sense. Now we move on to problem number three. Andros levied taxes. Previously, taxes had been levied via a vote from the colonial assembly, which were made up of deputies elected by the people. Taxation and representation going hand in hand. Therefore, Andros levying taxes made people furious. It was not how things were done. It didn't matter that taxes were actually lower under the new regime, what mattered was their loss of liberty. No taxation without representation. Reverend John Wise said that this was a violation of the rights of Englishmen and opposed payment of all taxes which were not authorised by elected assemblies. Several were arrested and imprisoned for this. As time went on, it became an increasingly problematic issue. Town meetings even had to be halted in some areas because they turned into stages for people to complain about the taxes. This meant that Andros had managed to alienate every single group of people in the colony, aside from the merchants of Boxton except, oh wait, 
No, he antagonised them too. The wealthy merchants of Boston had chafed under the previous regime. The religious oligarchy of New England had not allowed non-Puritans a vote, and so the merchants had been kept out. They were excited by the changes, and the lessening of the influence of the old oligarchs. So, Andros did the thing that would annoy them more than anything else. He decided to strongly enforce the Navigation Act. I can't emphasise enough just how much the Navigation Acts were hated in New England. I know I've said this before, but we have an episode all about mercantilism in the future that we have to do. It's coming sooner rather than later. So, the people hated Andros and the new arrangement. The oligarchs hated Andros and the new arrangement. The Puritans hated Andros and the new arrangement. And the merchants hated Andros and the new arrangement. The situation was doomed. So, from which of these groups did the downfall of Andros and the Dominion of New England come from? Well, none of them. The downfall came from London, alongside the downfall of the system's architect, James II. As we have covered extensively, James II fell during the Glorious Revolution of 1688, when William, the Prince of Orange, landed in England and soon became King William III, alongside Mary II, daughter of James. News of the invasion reached New England in March 1689, and prominent figures in the government were arrested by April. Andros managed to escape initially, but soon surrendered. We don't know for sure who was involved in the organisation of the uprising. We suspect that the old oligarchs were involved in planning it, and there is some evidence to support that, although they obviously denied any knowledge that a revolt was in the works. Once Andros was imprisoned, the old governments quickly resurfaced. In a few weeks, Plymouth, Connecticut and Rhode Island had reverted to their pre-dominion of New England governments. New York transitioned to the rule of one Jacob Leisler, who was chosen by the people. East and West Jersey returned to the authority of the proprietors, while in Massachusetts there was briefly a provisional government before power was transferred to the government at the time of the Charter's annulment. Massachusetts had this government for two years. Not permanently, just for a couple of years. While the Dominion of New England was an unmitigated disaster, it had been founded to solve real issues, issues which were soon resurfacing. The government was weak, the various colonies were unable to effectively cooperate against the Indians and the French. Meanwhile, back in England, William and Mary were left in quite a predicament. While the colonies in the north had revolted against the crown, it wasn't quite so simple. They had rebelled against James II, which was exactly what they had done. It had to be phrased differently, and they might say that James II abandoned the throne 
when he fled to France and Mary was merely succeeding him, but they had. They had been in rebellion. All the rebellions of New England were, after all, done in the name of William and Mary. If they didn't approve of the rebellion, they would be admitting that their own actions were unjustifiable and an illegitimate seizure of power. So they couldn't oppose the rebellion, but likewise, accepting the status quo was problematic. The current situation was untenable. There were, though, more pressing matters in Europe, and so William didn't have to decide what to do immediately. It wasn't until 1691 that William set about his colonial policy. Firstly, there was the obvious. The Dominion of New England was abandoned, and a number of new governments were established. The simplest of these were Connecticut and Rhode Island. They were both restored to their previous charters, as neither had yet been annulled instead floating around the court system. Next, New Hampshire was definitively established as a separate colony, becoming a royal province. No longer would it be part of Massachusetts. Indeed, Massachusetts underwent the greatest changes. It could not be returned to its previous charter of 1629. It would give power to such a narrow segment of society most being left disenfranchised, and there would be no guarantee of religious freedom, which would all go against the spirit of the Glorious Revolution. There were other reasons, such as a need to more closely integrate Massachusetts into the imperial system. A new charter was granted in 1691, which turned Massachusetts into a royal province, but the people of the region had a much stronger same government than the other colonies. Massachusetts retained control of Maine, and the Pilgrim colony of Plymouth was abolished and folded into Massachusetts. In addition, Massachusetts was given control of the recently conquered Nova Scotia, although the French soon reconquered the territory, so this wasn't that important. There was a governor appointed by the crown who could veto acts by the general court. Acts approved by both could then be vetoed by the king in council within three years. The general court had two houses, as before, the upper house being comprised of the governor and council, and the lower elected by the people. The councillors would be elected by the assembly. The religious qualification for voting was removed, being replaced by a property qualification. Local government mostly continued unchanged. Massachusetts was brought more into the outside world, and the power of the clergy was reduced. This was very important, as Massachusetts entered the next stage of its history, something we'll get more into in our next few episodes. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember you can find more information online. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. On Twitter, at history Jamie. You can send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also visit our website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.